Hey, Salt City. Uh, my name is Jordan Adams. I'm the, the college pastor here. And yeah, if you, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to, to Mark 8. Uh, we're going to dive right in. And, and like Drew said, it's a, it's a tough text today. Jesus gets a little in our face, but I think it's going to be really good. And so I, I want us to kind of listen into what he has to say together. And, and today we're at like one of the pinnacles of the book of Mark, because we've been trying to think throughout Mark, who is this guy? Who's the one that stops the wind and the waves? Who's the carpenter that goes back to his hometown and tries to perform miracles? Who is this guy? And we're going to get a little bit of an answer to that question this morning. And so this is what I want to what I want to show us first, what type of Messiah Jesus is. Second, the, the kind of caricatures or misunderstandings that we have of him. And then third, the hard but good life of following him. All right, so let's dig right into the text. Mark eight twenty two. Mark eight twenty two. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. All right. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So there is some weird stuff going on. I think Jesus got made fun of a little bit in junior high. Like the dude is a little weird. And, and one of the first weird things that's happening is that, that Jesus heals people in different ways, but he takes this guy by the hand and then he spits in his eyes. Like dude literally never saw it coming. Yeah, see what I did there? He's blind, guys. All right, so, but like just picture like a blind guy standing in front of him. He, he doesn't know where Jesus is and then Jesus spits in his eyes and then he opens up his eyes and then there's trees walking around. What's that about? Not really. What, what he's saying, it's, it's kind of a fancy way of seeing I can see, but not clearly. Everything's fuzzy. And so that, that brings us to a second question. Like, did it just not work? Like, did Jesus try and heal this guy and like, it, he just wasn't quite powerful enough? I don't think that's really the best explanation. Dude can stop the wind and the waves. I think he can heal a blind man. So what is going on here? Why is there, there's kind of like this two-stage healing that happens. Jesus heals him partially so that he can start to see, and then he heals him fully so he can see fully. Well, I think what Jesus is doing is he's using a real story as an illustration to teach us something. And a lot of commentators would agree that Jesus is, is healing this blind man in kind of two phases as an example for what the disciples are like. And so what he's saying to his disciples and what he's saying to us is, hey, you're about to see me, but you're not gonna see me clearly. And you need me to continue to open your eyes so that you can further understand who I am. You're gonna start to see, but it's gonna be fuzzy. It's gonna be a misunderstanding. And so against that backdrop, we get to this, verse 27, one of the high points in the book. They're walking along the road, just kind of having a casual conversation, and this is what Jesus said. And Jesus went on with his disciples in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
he asked them, what do you say about me? And it's a powerful question. And it's actually the most important question of your life. It's the question that your eternity stands or crumbles on. Who do you say that Jesus is? And in fact, if someone were to watch your life, what would they say from your life about who you say he is? And he asked his best friends in the world, what do you guys say about me? And Peter, speaking for the disciples, he says this, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the one sent from God. Peter finally gets something right. And and immediately at the confession, Jesus' ministry starts to change. And really the flow of the entire book of Mark starts to change. And Jesus begins to talk to them clearly about who he is. There's no more parables. He's now speaking directly to them about the suffering and the death that's coming. And then this is what happens in verse 32. Oh, Peter. (laughs) Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Bold move, Peter. Like you just, you literally just said that this is the Christ, the chosen one of God. And he's like, here, let me, let me take you off to the side here. I'm going to tell you what's really up. This is trying to teach LeBron James basketball. Like this is, this is a bad idea, Peter. And so Jesus kind of hears him out like, okay, nice rebuke, Peter. Now let me give you one. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but the things of man. So what just happened? So one second, Peter confesses him as the Christ and Jesus begins to reveal himself in ways that he never has before to his disciples. And then two seconds later, Jesus is calling him Satan. Like this is a little bipolar, right? Well, what happened is, is that Peter misunderstood and Jesus will not be misunderstood. See, Peter didn't want a suffering Messiah that he had to suffer with. Peter wanted a Christ with a crown, but not a cross. See, the disciples, they wanted a kingdom, but not the one they got. They wanted a kingdom where they would conquer, not where they would suffer. They wanted a king, but, but one of strength, not of weakness. They wanted salvation, but from the Romans, not their sin. And they wanted freedom. But they thought freedom meant living however they wanted not dying to what they wanted. And if Jesus' best friends, the ones who have been doing ministry with him for years, could miss him and misunderstand him, don't you think it would be a little bit arrogant of us to not think that it was possible for us to do the same? That maybe we could miss him, that maybe we could misunderstand him. So have you guys ever been to like the state fair and gotten one of those like caricatures like the little cartoon versions of you. And it, it kind of looks like you, but then for some reason you have like a giant nose. There's one thing that's, that's exaggerated. So I think we can kind of do that with Jesus where we can kind of start to get him, start to understand him. But one thing is taken kind of completely out of proportion or, or one thing is, is not represented enough about him in our, in our minds. And so I want to give us two ways that we miss him, that we kind of caricature Jesus. And those, the first way is cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. And here's what I mean by that is in cultural Christianity, you're seeing how God hates sin, but you're not really seeing how much of it is in you. 
Seeing how much God hates sin, but not really seeing how much of it is in you. And, and so what this looks like is you view Christianity as kind of a morality system, a, a series of, of rules and sort of catchphrases by which you try and live your life, which isn't all that bad, but it's actually the, it's missing the depths of what it means to follow Jesus. And here's, here's what it, it, it misunderstands is, is you see the danger of sin but you think that the problem of sin is kind of out there. Out there in a couple ways. Okay, so the first way is that you see sin as external. It's, it's a series of, of behaviors that are committed. So it's, it's drinking, it's, it's having sex, it's, it's cussing, it's, it's kind of whatever that list is for you, these external behaviors that, that that's what it means to sin. And so the idea is if you can modify the behavior, if you can get rid of those things that are kind of very clearly sin, then you'll be okay. And the second way that you see it as sin is kind of out there is you see sin as primarily coming from the world coming from people who think differently than you, that maybe didn't grow up with a Christian background or, or Christian morality, who have a, a secular view of the world. And so the, the strategy to fight sin is to differentiate between you and them, between your culture and the world's culture, to, to create kind of a, a Christian subculture of, of Christian music and Christian friends and Christian morality that'll kind of insulate you from sin, that will kind of keep you away from the bad stuff. And the idea is if you can be disciplined enough to, to avoid the bad movies, the bad situations, if you can align yourself with a political party that legislates Christian morality, if, if you can maintain an, a morally upright life, then you'll be Okay then you won't be infected by sin. Let me ask you, what's, what's your tendency to respond to sin in your life? So like when you commit a sin, how do you, how do you respond? What do you feel? How do you behave? Do you tend to pretend or perform? Like, like pretend, you know, that that, that that sin didn't really happen or it's not really that bad. Or do you tend to, to perform, to respond to that sin by resolving to never do it again, to kind of get your life and your stuff together so that you never have to do that again? How's that going for you? Is it working? Or what about your kids? When they mess up, do you tend to be demanding, kind of condemning? Do you expect them to be more than they realistically can be? So, so here's what I want to, I want to show you something about how the, the disciples misunderstood Jesus. See, Peter wanted Jesus to come as the conquering king. Why? Because he thought that the problem was out there. He thought that the problem was the, the pagan Romans. And that if God's people would be kind of put in charge, then everything would be okay. But the thing that Peter didn't see was that the problem wasn't just the Romans, it was him. And we need to see that the problem isn't just out there, it's in here. Like your heart, my heart, it's the center of the rebellion against God. And, and 
Trying to beat sin with cultural Christianity would be like wearing a medical mask over your mouth when you're diagnosed with cancer and expecting it to heal it. Like you've already been infected by the disease. Preventative measures aren't going to help. All right, so that's the first way that we misunderstand the Messiah, kind of the caricature of Jesus. The second way, I didn't really know what to call this, and I don't really love this name, but we're just going to roll with it, all right? So the second way is, is postmodern theology. Postmodern theology. And what this is, is seeing Jesus' compassion towards sinners, but not seeing his authority to judge sin. Seeing Jesus' compassion to judge sinners, but not seeing his authority to judge sin. And if this is you, you tend to see some actually really great things and give some pushback to the church that, that we desperately need. So, so you tend to rightly see kind of the hypocrisy and the fakeness of church. You see that social justice matters, that, that only talking about how to be made right with God kind of hypothetically or in theory isn't enough, but we got to actually do something to tangibly love people. You see the, the compassion of Jesus. You see his humanity. You see his kindness. And, and you should, and you see that, that the church should take care of the orphan, that it should seek to listen to and understand people that are different from us, that we should love people from all cultures, from all backgrounds, from all races. And that's beautiful. Like it, it's, it's the pushback that we need. But in understanding the compassion of Jesus, you can tend to forget about his authority. That in advocating for what's true, that God loves people, period, end of story, you can begin to cringe at what's also true, that he punishes sin. And in not wanting to see Jesus like that, you're tempted to call into question the one authoritative description of what he's like, the Bible. And, and some of you are, are kind of processing this right now, or you have friends that are processing this. You have, you have friends that have started to kind of walk away from Christianity because, some, because of some of this mindset. They're asking the question, or you're asking the question, can I know Jesus and can I follow him without believing that the Bible is the authoritative word of God? But here's what you're missing. If you have Jesus without his authority expressed through that book, you have an invention of modern culture. You don't have the real Jesus who walked the earth and who called people to repentance. You missed him. So, so here's what I want to get at is that Jesus doesn't fit into our boxes. And, and out of love, when Peter tries to, to make Jesus into something that he's not, he's angry. He calls him out because he refuses to be made into something that he's not. He refuses to be the Messiah that we want him to be because he's the Messiah that we need him to be. And those two are almost never the same thing. So the next section begins with Jesus' call to discipleship. It's a call to be like him in his suffering. And, and, and essentially, he's going to lay out kind of the main idea, and then in the text, you're going to see several fours, like not the, not the number four, but F-O-R. 
So there's going to be his main idea, and then he's going to connect that and kind of explain that to several points. So here it is, verse 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So here, here's the call that Jesus gives. Come and die. He says, pick up your cross, which we we kind of lose the significance of that because it sounds so familiar. The cross was, it was an, an execution device. Why would he call us to come and die? What does he want us to see? Well, he's calling us to die to the selfish motivations to the sin, to anything left from your old life before you met him that's robbing you from seeing and knowing him. That's a division in your soul from experiencing him and his goodness towards you, his fullness towards you. See, grace is free in the sense that you can't earn it, but it's not free in the sense that it'll cost you your life. So I do college ministry, which means that like 50% of what I do is real ministry, and then 50% of what I do is staring into the belly of the beast that is college relationships. Like just, I know way more about late teen, early 20s dating than I ever cared to know. It's, it's just front and center of, of people's lives, and I've tried to dissect the female brain with so many dudes unsuccessfully. We haven't figured it out. You guys are gonna have to help us out. But here's what happens in, in almost every uh, beginning of every relationship is it's never clear cut. There's always this like, like pseudo dating phase where they're, they're going on dates, but they're not dating. Or we're talking, which means we're sending lovey-dovey text messages to each other with a lot of emojis and then pretending like we don't know each other in public. Or, or we're together, but we're not dating, because I don't want to label it, because that's not cool. Okay, what's happening? Like, I, am, I am constantly trying to push dudes towards the dreaded DTR, the define that relationship, define that thing. But, but people don't want to. Why? Because we intuitively know that if you label something a relationship, it will require a commitment from you. It will require self-sacrifice. It will require exclusivity. And even though a relationship is better, it's a lot harder. And so people are nervous about that commitment. Here's the deal. A, a confession of Jesus is a call to a commitment with your entire life. It implies exclusivity. It implies commitment. It implies self-sacrifice. 
A real with relationship with Jesus is a decision to give him exclusivity to the throne of your heart, to change directions from pursuing all your other loves, all the other things that have become ultimate in your life, and to die to them. Confessing Christ is committing to consistently, constantly, intentionally kill selfish desires and sin in your life. When you say he is Christ, he is the Lord, that's what you're agreeing to. And he explains why. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying, you can chase selfish desires until they become ultimate in your life, or you can have me. What good is it to have everything and to lose him? So in in honor of the Vikings today, I see some Viking shirts and a jersey. Well done. In honor of the Vikings playing today, we're going to give a little little football analogy. Unfortunately, it involves Tom Brady. Uh, You'll have to forgive me for that. But um, Tom Brady has five Super Bowl rings, a supermodel wife, and a bunch of money. So the dude has pretty much everything that the, the world would say, hey, this is what you should go after. This is what will make you happy. And 60 Minutes did an interview with him several years ago when he only had three rings only. Um, yeah, Tom Brady. Anyway, 60 Minutes did an interview with him when he had three rings. And, and this is what he said, that the interviewer essentially said, hey, it's, it's, you've gotten everything that you've dreamed. Has it been amazing? And he said this, it has. I didn't think it would come with all the other baggage though. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could make in my life of playing football. But why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've I've reached my goal, my dream, my life is complete. Me, I think there has to be something more than this. The interviewer said, what is the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He pursued the selfish desires of his heart. He got more and more and more. And it came up empty. And he wished he had an answer. See, here's what Brady found. That you can chase everything this world has to offer and it will never satisfy your soul. Because in chasing everything else, you will lose him And someday you're going to stand in eternity with nothing to show for your life because everything that you've chased can't come with you. And I think we kind of know that in our heart. I think we kind of see the emptiness of chasing other things besides him. So the question is, why do we keep going after it? Why do we keep going back to the same old stuff? So Drew was telling me the other day that he's trying to teach his kids about sin and, and so he has named sin in their hearts, the little green monster. And so when his kids are like throwing a fit or getting mad, he'll be like, is that you talking or is it the little green monster? 
And when they know like what's up, they'll be like, it's the little green monster. And I'll be like, all right, like let's fight it together then. That's great parenting, man. Well done. Uh, but don't, don't clap, that would be weird. But, <laughs> but it is great parenting. But this sounds so much cheesier than it was when I wrote this sermon. You have a little green monster in you. Uh, but there, there's sin that's residing in your heart and it's trying to convince you that there's a better life out there for you than following Jesus. And no matter how much you see it proved wrong, it comes back up in you again and again because that old you that was there that dominated you before Christ is still living inside of you. And Jesus wants to come alongside of you and he wants to introduce you to a better life by helping you fight that thing. And so here's what's true of the Christian life is that you have to actively, intentionally kill sin before it kills you. So let me ask you, what's the old you that you're letting hang around in your life? What's the selfishness that still kind of crops up in your heart? What is it that you haven't been willing to lay on the table before Jesus? What is he asking you for? So I I know this is different. Let me actually just pray real quick that he would reveal that. Jesus, by your spirit, would you help us to see the things that you're asking us to give up to follow you? Would you right now convict us, convict me, by your spirit of what we need to give up, what part of the old self we need to kill in order to follow you. Amen. How do you kill sin? Well, you you starve it. So you will either feed sin or you will feed the flesh in your life. It's one or the other. And whatever you feed will grow stronger. And so if you've been feeding a certain sin, maybe something came to your mind, maybe the Spirit brought something to mind just now, if you've been feeding that and not really fighting it and trying to kill it, it's grown strong in your heart. And and the first step is just simply committing to try and fight it again. And the longer you fight it, the longer you starve that flesh in yourself, the more the voice of the Spirit will grow in you. And here's what it looks like to to starve the flesh as you bring it into the light. Your sin can't survive in the light. Here's what I mean by that. Confess your sin. Confess it to God. Confess it to people around you. Tell people what's true of you in Connection Group this week. Tell them what just popped into your head if something came to mind. And and confession isn't some kind of ritual that will magically fix you, but confession is a way of you saying, hey, this is what I've been acting like, but it's not who I am anymore. It's not who I am, and it's not who I want to be, so I'm going to own it because I'm not defined by it. And as you confess your sin, as you starve your flesh and feed the Spirit, just don't give up. I think some of you have stopped fighting, not because you don't think it's important, but, but because you're discouraged. You're sick of being the person that has to confess that same thing over and over again. You think you should be further along than that. And I want to invite you back into the fight and remind you that the end goal of Christianity is not for you to be perfect. I think we want to be the people that are, are 
are perfect or that kind of have it together or that don't sin like that anymore so that we don't have to confess it, so that we can kind of stand on our own two feet. But what if Jesus is allowing you to fight and struggle with that sin so that you'll be dependent on him? What if he wants is not your perfection, but your heart? And what if through allowing you to fight, he's trying to call you to himself because you need him? Join the fight because it's not about being perfect. It's about being dependent on him. So I had a, I had a, weird, I had a weird week this week. So every once in a while, I, I try and take a spiritual retreat where I get into like solitude, just away from everything and just think and pray. And I don't know where to do that up here. So I was Googling random stuff and I found these cabins out in the woods and I was like, this is perfect. So I booked it and then I figured out that it was a convent, like run by nuns. And so when I, when I called them to like talk about it, they were still down for me coming or whatever. And they like bake you fresh bread and give you bread and cheese as you show up but there's like no electricity because they believe in simplicity. And uh, I probably should, but I wanted to make a steak while I was there. So I cooked a pan and a steak and all this other stuff. And I, I loaded up my car and I was ready to head out and I turned my key and my car was completely dead. And I had just changed the battery over the weekend. So I didn't know what was going on. So I, I take it in and by the time I get it fixed, I got to call the nuns and tell them I'm not coming. And they were genuinely really disappointed like, shoot, we were looking forward to having you. And I was like, I was looking forward to being with you. This would have been great. Um, and so that was the, the first thing that happened. And then I drove home that day and got a flat tire and tried to patch it myself. And that was a disaster. And it was just rough. And so, so then I got to the next day and I'm like, all right, I'm going to work really hard to catch back up. I'm going to reschedule my retreat with the nuns. And so I get my stuff done and I re- reschedule my retreat with the nuns. And I'm driving there and I realize I don't have my wallet. And so I go back home to look for it, and two hours later, still haven't found it. Still haven't found it to this day. While it's just gone. So I had to call him again and tell him I can't come again. And, and I, also had, I also went to the DMV twice this week. Which we don't believe in purgatory, but if we did, the DMV is it. <laughs> like, it's just a bunch of people sitting and waiting for someone to get them out of there. And I, it's horrible. And so I was there twice because I went to renew my license at the beginning of the week and then lost said license that was in my wallet. So no retreat, just sitting in a bunch of DMV hours. And, and I like, in the grand scheme of things, that's not really suffering. That's not really picking up my cross, but I like, I hated it. And this, I like threw a fit, kind of like a three, I literally punched a pillow. And, and, and like in punching the pillow, realized I am preaching this week on why suffering to know Jesus is, is beneficial and I should probably chill out. But what happened? I had this sin that was living in me that welled up and came out of me as pride. And here's why. Because in that moment, I thought I knew what was best for me. Having the retreat and having everything go well. And I didn't believe that Jesus wanted to be good to me. And I actually thought, I didn't think this consciously, but looking back on it, I actually thought that I would be a better God for me in that moment than he was for me. Here's the deal. Suffering will seem unbearable and pointless unless you believe that God is out for your good. 
Jesus is honest with you. He's blunt with you and it hurts, but it's good. Yes, he's inviting you into a life of pain, but he's inviting you into a life of purpose. There's a difference between the cries of pain in hospice and the cries of pain in a maternity ward. Cries of pain that lead to life are worth it. The difficulty of following Jesus is an invitation to life. Jesus' invitation to come and die is an invitation into joy because it's an invitation to know him. And the life of knowing him is actually what you crave. It's what you've been looking for. So if you think of following Jesus as a coin, on one side of the coin is the really hard life of dying to yourself, giving up everything to follow him. But on the flip side is, as you die to yourself, the, the more of him that you experience. That you grow into your identity in Christ. And Jesus isn't gonna ask you to walk through something that he himself has not walked through. Like he should have came as the conquering king like Peter wanted him to be. But why didn't he? Because his justice would have fallen on us. And so instead, he came as the servant king, God serving you. He came as the sufferer, taking on the eternal suffering that we had coming. And even that ridiculous suffering that we can't even begin to understand was for his joy. Why? Because with his suffering, he purchased you. And you are his joy. You're worth it to him. And if suffering was worth it to him, shouldn't it be worth it to us? I want to end here. Just reading you this text again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And that's because of John 10.10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for calling us into the hard life of killing sin so that it doesn't have to kill us. Um, I, like, I confess my sins. I confess <laughs> this week wanting to throw a little rebellion against you because I didn't trust you. But thanks for reminding me that you're out for my good. <laughs> um, yeah, that even when life is hard or when it seems like you ask us for unrealistic things, that you're inviting us into joy because we get to know you Help us to take radical steps of obedience and faith this week to rejoin the fight to kill sin because we believe that you're good and that you're worth it. And so give us what we need to be people that honor you, Jesus, to be people that follow you. We love you. Amen.